Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello, can I please speak with Claudia Rankin? Is this Claudia Rankin? Yes, it is. How are you? I am very well. I'm so pleased, Claudia, that you're part of these quarantine tapes. I I really am delighted that you accepted this call. Thank you so much. Tell me, uh, Claudia, how have you been living these past four months of what we might call a quarantine time? Well, um, I, in some ways, it's not been so bad, to be honest. I, I haven't traveled, so I've been home with my family, which is rare to, to have consecutive weeks at home. So that, that's been nice. Um, and we're lucky enough to live in the part of New Haven where um, there are lots of trees and hikes so we can get out. So um, it, it, speaking to, to many writers recently, they, they have often said what everybody's living through is our life as it is usual, but of course, with an incredible difference. Because, exactly. You know, because you spend so much time, so much time alone, so much time writing. I think the difference might be that you have time now, as you said, with your family, which can be wonderful. And for some people, it can be detrimental. For, well, for us, in our case, it has been wonderful. I, you know, I um, my daughter is at the age now where um, the world is more interesting than we are. That's She's 17. So right, right, right. I feel like I've been given a gift to actually be able to have meals with her and sit down and talk to her about what's going on in the world. So... Um, and a lot is going on in the world. So it's, yeah. it's, been, it's been really um, an interesting four months from that perspective. Has it, has it been hard to, to, to talk with her about what's going on in the world? Well, um, oddly, no. Um, because these kinds of conversations, not perhaps not COVID, but, but the issues of precarity in the society, um, racism... Um, police uh, brutality, anti-black racism specifically, all of those things we discuss on a normal, you know, <laughs> over the years. So she's she sort of um, used to that. And, and, the, and I was particularly, t- forgive me, I, I, I feel like I interrupted you. Please continue. Sorry. No, no, no. But I mean, but, but there is an underlying um, un- unsteadiness about what's happening and and. and how much at risk we are to the virus and what she can and cannot do and how that affects um, her parents, me and her father in the household. So those kinds of discussions are new. You know, I was, I was so struck to, to, to read about your forthcoming book, uh, Just Us, An American Conversation. And I was really interested, well, you know how interested I am in conversation, 
um, I think we're having one now, but why why a conversation? Why that subtitle, as it were, which is really part of the title, it feels. Yes, uh, I you know I think that we're at a we we are at an impasse in this country. People don't know how to speak to each other. They don't know what the other person doesn't know. Um, it's It's um, amazing how we have gotten this far with with a kind of segregated mentality around simply speaking to each other and speaking about certain subjects. And so I wanted to write a book that looked at what it means to talk about race in the United States. And so I took actual conversations that I've had in the real world and brought them to a shrink and asked the shrink, you know, why did I say the things I said? And why did this person say the things they said to me? Like what, how are we functioning beyond the surface, you know, or beneath the surface? What might have um, pushed me to be irritated? Um, and after I, I um, discussed the conversation with the shrink. I um, I wrote it out and I gave it to a fact checker and I asked the fact checker to to tell us sort of what where I was making um, statements or presumptions that were not based on actual fact or where the other person might be doing the same. And so he came back with the actual historical facts. Um, And so those were put into the conversation. Um, and then I would give the conversation back to the person, uh, if it were you, that I had the conversation with, and say, is this the conversation we had? And, and do you have anything to add? How, and if how, the person... How about subtract? Or subtract... Yeah, well, you know, if, if you said, no, this is not the conversation, then I would change it. But nobody ever said that. Everybody said, yes, this is the conversation we had. These are the things I said, but this is not what I meant. And, and then they would write me something to explain what they meant. This is, and then, this is a methodology and, you've used over, over time. I, I remember uh, uh, when we last spoke during hurricane, hurricane Katrina, you, as I recall, you recorded CNN coverage of the storm. And in, in a way, you're, you're continuing this uh, in this new book. But what, what, is, what do you think is behind that impulse? And I must say, um, I, I'm, Claudia, I'm, I'm, I'm particularly taken by the notion that you took that to someone who looks um, at, at the ground floor of the house or maybe the basement or maybe the cellar of the house, namely a shrink. Well, I, I, I wanted to know, you know, am I, because these conversations often are heated, people get, they have a lot of feelings that come up. Um, and is it just the moment? Is it just use calling somebody white that makes everybody so angry? Or is there more to it than that, you know? And um, and so I, I really wanted another, a professional person's opinion on that. Um, because even now, during... During um, the quarantine, we have people who, when they're asked to put on a mask, they go crazy. They start, you know, yelling racist slurs at people, pointing guns at them. And as much as I can just say, oh, those people are racist, I, I feel like there's more to it than that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they, they were, yeah. I, I, you're, in fact, you're 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 answering my question by by saying there's more to it, 
And and and, yeah. and and this anger that we see, I mean, we see it all the time, right? Every single day, we see mm-hmm. angry people going into stores, being told to put on a mask, and then screaming at the 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 essential workers, right? As as they are now exactly. called. And and I'm 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 curious what you make of that. I I had a conversation on the quarantine tapes with a a colleague of yours, Greg Grandin. Uh, who, mm-hmm. who who believes that in some way people have you know misunderstood their rights? But I'm wondering what 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 you make of that that moment of what one might call hyper individualism. Well, I think I think that's the language to talk about it. But I I I feel like the rage is even beyond that. I think mm. that ha- I think we are in a society without a leader. We are surrounded by the threat of a virus that has, you know, many people have succumbed to it. And so people, I think, are really on the edge in terms of anxiety, depression, isolation, their own sense of, we have no idea what their sense of precarity is um, relative to economic um, or, you know, what are they able to pay their rents? Are they worried about mortgage? Are they whatever? We, we have no idea. So they're living in a very precarious and tenuous way. And then the minute somebody asks them to do something they have been told by our president not to do, <laughs> um, they go berserk. And um, yeah. and so he's politicized a kind of emotional um, precariousness, and then given them the language of of rights. You know, I have the right not to do this. But I but I think the emotions are so deep that they must be coming from from a more complex place. And translating those emotions into a different reality is really what what now matters so much. I was so taken. Uh, Claudia, by by the poem that was featured on the front page of the New York Times uh, uh, book section on Sunday about a month ago called Weather. And I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to ask Claudia Rankin actually to read it? It was so impressive to see it there on the front page without commentary. So perhaps you could read it and offer some commentary either before or after. Um, Sure. On a scrap of paper in the archive is written, I have forgotten my umbrella. Turns out in a pandemic, everyone, not just the philosopher, is without. We scramble in the drought of information held back by inside traders, drop by drop, face covering. No, yes, social distancing, six feet under for underlying conditions, black, just us and the blues, kneeling on a neck with the full weight of a man in blue. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. In extremis, I can't breathe gives way to asphyxiation, to giving up this world. And then mama called to, a call to protest. Fire, glass, say their names, say their names. White silence equals violence. The violence of again, a militarized police force tear gassing. Bullets ricochet, the civil unrest taking it burning it down, whatever. Contracts keep us social, compel us now to disorder the disorder. Peace, we're out to repair the future. 
there's an umbrella by the door, not for yesterday, but for the weather that's here. I say weather, but I mean a form of governing that deals out death and names it living. I say weather, but I mean a November that won't be held off this time. Nothing, no one forgotten. We are here for the storm that's storming because what's taken matters. Tell me. So, the... um. That scrap of paper in the archive is actually um, Nietzsche's. Yeah. yeah. And um, about the umbrella, it's Nietzsche, and then and then you know there's a wonderful line that that Benjamin Walter Benjamin quotes um, of a letter of Proust, where Proust says, "Dear Madame, I." I forgot my umbrella. I'm I'm bringing a a a someone to pick it up, and then in that same letter he says, "Dear Madame, I found my umbrella." <laughs> but tell me, yeah, um, it's Nietzsche. Jerry Jai has written about about um, that line as a way of thinking about forgetting about your body, forgetting about your own needs. But, so, but I wanted I wanted this idea of will to power, like who you know, <laughs> whose will to power will will um, be the governing force at the end of the day. And, um, and then the poem just, you know, unfolds in, from, from COVID into Floyd's murder because it did just sort of do that. We were sort of brought home and the questions around the virus were everywhere. Should we wear masks? Should we not? And we have, you know, the, the kind of... Um, buffoonery of, of, of an administration that is confused about whether or not it should be protecting its citizens or running for election. Mm. And so constantly um, stepping forward, moving back, not understanding um, what is truth, what, is truth. <laughs> you know, it has made truth a kind of um, a thing that is movable. Um, so, and then Floyd is killed by the police, which is not news in the sense that black men and women have been um, unjustifiably killed by the police for as long as I have been alive. Mm. Um, but there was something very, very uh, uh, gruesome about watching the calm with which this man just kept his knee on on an unresisting person who is actually asking for help. Um, that and because it was videotaped, um, I think we all got to see it in a way that was not um, pot. Because normally we're running here, we're going there, we're flying here, we're in airports, we're in taxis, we're walking, we have a meeting, and so you get a glimpse. But now everybody was home, so when it when it appeared, it appeared, and you could take it in. You could actually take it in and understand the horror the sustained systemic horror of how um, black people are treated in this country by the police and how the justice system has propped that up. I mean, the police couldn't do what they do if the justice system, if the judges um, didn't support them, if the prosecutors didn't support them. And, um, you know, so the the police is just the first face of the systemic um, destruction um, aimed at um, people of color, specifically anti-black racism. So anyway, that 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 the poem kind of falls out through that and down through that, and some of the um, the statements that have been in the protest say their names and white silence equals violence. 
people were carrying around those signs. Um, and we know that um, the protesters were tear gassed and, and shot at. And people took it. That one of the most amazing things about what has happened in the last few months is that we saw an American public show up and said, you know, we are not going to take this anymore. Mm. And and it was everybody. Mm. This was not this was not young people or old people or white people or black people. It was everybody. It was American citizens. It was Americans. Um, and then a European. Um, uh, and an uh, international yes. um, response in solidarity, which was humbling. Um, so um, humbling, and, and, then, and humbling, and 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 in some way, perhaps encouraging. And encouraging, yeah, humbling and encouraging. I mean, humbling in that you, you, ha- I have been waiting a lifetime hmm. for people to say a life is worth something. You know, not a black life or a white life or an Asian life or, or life. a Latinx. A life is worth something. And um, and finally, <laughs> and finally. People stood up and said, "Yes, no, this is this is outrageous." But you know, I, um, I, 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 I came across again in preparing to speak with you, Claudia, that that piece you wrote maybe five years ago in the New York Times uh, called "The Condition of Black Life Is One of Mourning," where you say, "When blacks become overwhelmed by our culture's disorder and protest." ultimately to our own detriment because protest gives the police justification to militarize as they did in Ferguson. The the wrong-headed question that is asked is, what kind of savages are we rather than what kind of country do we live in? In a way, perhaps you would modify now with the help of your shrink the word detriment. Maybe it's not at their detriment now. Maybe it's maybe this kind of uh, uh, um, civil disobedience that is happening now and protest is a sign of of a a possible change or that there's a, a shard of hope in it. Well, I think so, but I think it's because of the collective action that we're seeing now, which is unprecedented. I mean, we have not seen this before, uh, which is not to say that individuals haven't shown up um, during the civil rights period or during, you know, but not not this sort of, you know, suburban white moms um, saying, you know, this is not the America we want. Um, um, those women... I have not seen them in my lifetime. I saw them come out for me too, but I did not see them show up for for a change in how um, policing works in this country, how justice is metered out in this country. And um, that is new. That is their, you know, kids, adults, parents, yeah. children. Yeah. yeah. This is new. This is a new day. And I think in some ways the, the brokenness of the executive branch is allowing people to see it's just how corrupt. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's helpful in a, in, a, in a strange way. And I'm I'm wondering in that same piece you you quote that amazing line of Lorraine Hansberry where you say the problem is we have to find some way with these dialogues to show and to encourage the white liberal to stop being a liberal and become an American radical. And exactly. And and 
maybe maybe Lorraine Hansberry is being heard now. Yes. No, I think I think that we uh, you know people brought themselves out on the street mm. when the government got militarized force. I saw um, um, police and and um, representatives of. I don't know. I'm not even sure if they were police, if they were military. I don't know who they were in um, in D.C. Pick up protesters and toss them. You know, so people were risking their lives. Yeah. This was not a walk in the park with a placard. This people were out there risking their lives with armed, um, angry police who you know who are probably now. Um, lynching people all over this country and we don't even know it. We've heard of a couple of lynchings here and there and supposedly some suicides. But, you know, you've got to wonder where the rage of the police will go. And I'm sure people are are continuing to be um, killed. So, so the people who went out were very brave because we knew um, that they knew they were not going to get the support of this president or, um, you know, so uh, I, I, I think that was a radical action. And it, and not only did it happen one day, it sustained itself over months. So that was an incredible, an incredible moment in American history. Coming back to to what I'd say is is um, Claudia Rankin as a as a collector, nearly as a you know a Benjaminian collector, collecting scraps that later on will 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 be helpful perhaps to you, uh, recording conversations that are truthful and that are spoken by people, and then checking with them to see if if they might have said that and improving on what they might have said or leaving it as you said you once said working on a piece is like playing chess you're moving the language around to say to somebody yes i know you're possibly thinking this i know this is possible this is a possible move for you i'm going to include it here so you don't think that i haven't been listening I'm, I'm, I'd love you to say a little bit more about that process, which is so interesting, and perhaps even in the context both of your forthcoming book and, and the present moment, because I feel like your, your forthcoming book, I imagine, will include this present reckoning. Oh, well, no, the book, was, um, the book is out in a month, so it stops before all that has happened. And, but it does ask the same questions that we are asking now. Um, and it, it was exactly that. I wanted, I wanted the, the conversation to be uh, just that, to be <laughs> one person to another. Even though what we're talking about is systemic institutional violence. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. But who makes up the institutions are people. Yeah. And, and, you know, so unless the people begin to recognize who they are and what their investments are and how much they're invested in whiteness. And not just white people are invested in whiteness, you know, other people are invested in whiteness. Um, you know, we have a lot of people who, who, who grew up in a system, in a society where the things that are valued are, are named in service of white supremacy, you know, just just silly things like blonde hair, for example. Right. 
you know, you have an entire Republican Party dyeing their hair blonde to signify. I mean, you, you see when you when you look at the convention from the images of the convention from four years ago, people were wearing blonde wigs if they weren't blonde themselves, if they hadn't already dyed their hair blonde. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and you have um, some very, very black performers having blonde hair because it makes them more marketable. And so, you know, so it's, it's really about how can we begin to, look at this society and, and, and talk about what's valued in it in order to see what's not valued. Mm. And, and That's you know, when, mm. you know, and I think until you can do that, until you can name the things that are valued, you won't be able to understand what isn't valued. Is that in part what, what your center at Yale is trying to do? The Racial Imaginary Institute? Yeah. It's not actually at Yale. I, I, it's in New York and the people... The collective that um, forms it are mostly located in New York um, because we wanted it to be um, available to a larger community right. than just the Yelp community. And and yes, the mission was to make apparent the things that were not talked about in terms of race. Um, you know, one example now, and we see the president doing this again and again, the insistence on the virus as the China virus. W what is that? <laughs> you know? uh, what, do you, what do you think it is? <laughs> It's an attempt to distance whiteness from and responsibility. Right. From from the violence, you know, from the violence of the virus, and so and and to blame and to create blame around it. Um, this is a pandemic that has affected every country in the world, and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet. So um, race plays. Race is an important weapon. It's weaponized, um, and 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 no other president has done it as um, overtly. Systematic. They've all, you know, but none has done it as overtly yeah. as the present administration. Claudia, what a note to leave you on. Um, but there was, there was also in in this um, conversation, there was also your wonderful laughter, uh, for which I'm very grateful. <laughs> and uh, it's lovely to talk to you. It's Paul. really Anytime. wonderful. It's really wonderful to talk to you and stay safe. I hope you stay close to your daughter. She might discover that. You know, she wants to spend more time with you. You know, <laughs> strange things have happened. Stranger things have yeah, happened. No. All the best. Well, maybe she'll go with me to vote. That will be nice that in November. Be, that would be wonderful. <laughs> that would be Fantastic. wonderful. That would be wonderful. I did that with my, my older son uh, just a, a, a few months ago, and it was extraordinary. It was the first time he could vote. So um, let's keep the fight on. Until yeah. Thank you so much, Claudia. Take good care of yourself and thank you for taking this call. Oh, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support.